welcome to the St Emlyn's Induction Podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall. And I'm Natalie May. And today we're going to talk about patients who come into us, female patients, who come in presenting with problems in early pregnancy. Now, for some of you, you may work in departments where you probably see very few of these patients, but others may have patients like this presenting all the time. And we thought it worthwhile to take a bit of time to talk through how we decide what needs to happen with each of these different patients. In our usual fashion, we're going to start by thinking about the worst case scenario, as that's what we do as emergency physicians. And we'll move through to think a little bit about some of the tests we need to do, some of the tests we probably don't need to do, and how we can make nice, quick decisions on these patients. So Natalie, where do you start when you're looking at a patient who presents to you, a young female patient maybe, who tells you she's pregnant or you may believe is pregnant, and she's come in maybe with some lower abdominal pain, perhaps a little bit of spotting, what do you start off by doing? A good place to start, just like any patient, is with some history. So we want to know about when the last period was so we can judge roughly how pregnant she might be. And we want to know about the the type of pain that she's got or the, the bleeding and whether the two things are coexisting, where the pain is, where it's going to, the nature of any bleeding, how often they're having to use pads or other sanitary protection, and whether there's been any risk factors that might make it more likely that there's an ectopic pregnancy rather than a, a uterine pregnancy. And I guess ectopic pregnancy is our worst case scenario. And it's probably more common than people think. But that needs to be at the front of our mind when we're looking at any patient who's got PV bleeding or abdominal pain in early pregnancy. The statistics suggest that one in 100 pregnancies in the UK is an ectopic pregnancy. But luckily for us, there's only about two in 1,000 of those with an ectopic pregnancy die as a result of it. So that's still quite scary numbers and really quite a lot more common than I thought it was going to be. So lots of people can have this, but I think maybe we've become more attuned to spotting it in the emergency department. I know that any young person, female patient with abdominal pain, Pregnancy is one of our first thoughts. And obviously, patients with a ruptured ectopic can come in in cardiovascular collapse and they need to be resuscitated. They need to be given fluids that we can do a fast scan maybe to see whether there's any blood. And we're going to be involving our gynecology colleagues really very early. Of course, most of our patients don't present in that state. They present with a little bit of spotting and some concern. Have you got any techniques or tips on how we can work out which of those patients need to be seen immediately and some of those who can wait for an outpatient clinic appointment in the next couple of days? I would say those patients Patients who've got any of those sort of minor symptoms, so not the patients with syncopal episodes, not the patients who've got severe abdominal pain or PV bleeding, and not those with hemodynamic instability, uh, and also not the patients who've got pain that's radiating to the shoulder tip that suggests that they might have diaphragmatic irritation from blood. Those patients are all going to go straight to gynae. It's that kind of middle ground patients where maybe they're not sure that they're pregnant or they've got a positive home pregnancy test um, and they've just got that little bit of pain. It's helpful to know if they've got risk factors so if they've got a risk factor that's going to make it more likely that the underlying pregnancy is an ectopic pregnancy then I would suggest those patients need to go to to be seen by gynae today so just as a refresher those risk factors are history of pelvic inflammatory disease previous pelvic surgery if they've had their tubes ligated if they've got unusual anatomy particularly if they've got ovarian or uterine cysts or tumors in the past if they've had an ectopic before or they've got adhesions or endometriosis something that's going to make those tubes abnormal if they've been having ivf or assisted fertilization in any way if they've got a coil in or and actually the 
patients who are on the progesterone only pill, they're also at increased risk of ectopic pregnancy. So anyone who meets those criteria, they probably need to be seen by gynae on the same day. And all of those risk factors to me sound like if we think about anatomically, this is just anything that's going to prevent that fertilized egg from getting down that fallopian tube and then implanting properly in the uterus. So anything that may cause that passage, that transport to be delayed so that it can then implant somewhere else. And all of those things you listed really are related to that, aren't they? One other thing that I think is really valuable when you're just starting out, especially with dealing with these patients, is to know how to describe things to your gynecological colleagues. With all things, if we speak the same language, it makes us at least feel like we understand better what the problem is. We need to think about the terms gravida and para, so we know what that means. So gravida means how many times a patient's been pregnant and para means the number of times they've actually gone on to have a completed pregnancy. When you start off the conversation with your colleagues there, this patient is gravida two, para one. So they've been pregnant twice, including this pregnancy, and they've gone on to have one baby after that. That would be the way to start off that. And the last menstrual period, as you say, is really important. And that's the start of the last menstrual period so it's the day it started and then you need to work out how many weeks they are from there because of course the number of weeks the patient are make an ectopic pregnancy more or less likely don't they ectopic pregnancies tend to present quite early generally usually around about six or seven weeks and it's unusual to see them any further on than 10 weeks and that must be i guess because of the size of this over the size of the the cells the body of cells sitting there once you're getting beyond nine ten eleven weeks it's too big so it must have ruptured through a tube by then that's the way I simply think about these things and and so this thing firstly can't travel down the tube and then once it starts growing at some point if it's going to rupture it will rupture out of that size and it can't be too big so early pregnancy six to eight weeks sounds about the sort of time for me where it's going to be be the right size to be causing problems but not yet ruptured so we've got these patients we see them we know they've got a positive pregnancy test I suppose, as an aside, we should just think about pregnancy tests. They're pretty good, aren't they, year in pregnancy tests? Yeah, they're, they're not bad, actually. They're, there's a great piece of work on the Best Bets website that comes out of Manchester looking at urine and blood HCG measurement for ectopic pregnancy. I've actually read that one on the Best Bets website. It says the sensitivity of the urine BHCG is about 96%. And that sensitivity is particularly good when the HCG level is over 100. But... Patients with ectopic pregnancy might have a really low HCG level. The figures are kind of variable. It's somewhere between 1% and 35% of ectopic pregnancies have got an HCG less than 100 units. And therefore, because the sensitivity and specificity of serum HCG over urine is closer to 100%, that's the preferential test to be really sure, as sure as we possibly can be, that the patient isn't pregnant. That's just a proviso for patients when we're thinking about ectopic pregnancy. If they've got a positive test, a urine test in the department, a urine test at home, and don't forget you can use a drop of blood on the urine testing strips if you if you don't want to send the blood off to the lab. If it's positive, that's enough for me. But if it's negative and it's a urine sample that you're testing, just be a little bit careful. If that HCG level is really, really low, you might be getting a false negative result. So a bit of quick revision. We've covered this in St. Emlyn's podcast before, and you can go back and listen to some of the things I did with Simon talking about diagnostic testing. So we're saying that urine pregnancy tests are highly specific, and that means a positive test is more likely to be true. There's fewer false positives. So if it says that you're pregnant, it's likely that you're pregnant. But the sensitivity is slightly lower. So there is a larger number of false negatives. So a negative test doesn't absolutely mean that the patient isn't pregnant. Really, again, that comes down to what we've talked about before of looking at your pre-test probability and working out whether or not a negative pregnancy test is enough to say the patient isn't pregnant. 
In my mind, if you've got that patient who's a young woman, who's syncopal, who's got cardiovascular collapse and is otherwise presenting like an ectopic, and I get a negative urine pregnancy test, I want to do a serum beta HCG to make sure that they're not pregnant because my pretest probability is so high that I need the best test I can to make sure that that's the case. If I've got that young girl who's maybe presenting with a bit of crampy lower abdominal pain, otherwise there's no other risk factors, I've done a negative pregnancy test, then I'm likely to think that that may prove that she's not pregnant now. But always relate that back to your pretest probability. So important to remember, serum pregnancy tests are more sensitive and specific, but a urine pregnancy test may well be enough for us to use in this context, depending on how the patient presents. It's also worth remembering that the mean HCG of a ruptured ectopic is going to be higher than that of an unruptured ectopic. So those patients who are really unwell, you're going to be expecting that the urine test is going to be positive. I would say just be really careful with using urine tests unless the patient is completely well. Now, while we're talking about diagnostic testing, we should probably give a thought to PV examination, per vaginal examination. Is this something that we need to be doing in the emergency department? This is a really interesting topic, actually, because I think our specialist colleagues in gynaecology get a bit frustrated that we're maybe not as forthcoming about doing PV exams as we might otherwise be. But I would argue that it's not a particularly pleasant thing to do. So in the the patients who are definitely going to need to have it done by gynaecology, it makes more sense for them to have it done once by somebody who does that all the time and knows exactly what they're looking for. There are some situations in the emergency department where we're going to want to do a PV exam. So that's for retained foreign bodies, specifically condoms and tampons. We're not going to be looking for razor blades. And there are some patients out there who decide that that's something that they choose to do with their lives. Condoms and tampons, common presentations to the ED, something that we can sort out and send the patient home, remembering that if, if it's a condom and they've therefore technically had unprotected sex, they're going to need a bit of counselling about that. And also the patients who present with bleeding in pregnancy and signs of vagal stimulation. So if you think back to your undergraduate studies, you might remember that if you get patients with heavy vaginal bleeding and particularly those who are undergoing a spontaneous miscarriage, they can get clots and products of conception trapped at the cervical os and that causes cervical shock, so bradycardia and severe hypotension. And the best way to treat that is to perform a speculum examination and remove those products from the os. So it's still a skill that we need to have as emergency physicians to be able to do that resuscitative procedure where we have a patient with cervical shock who needs those products removing in order to remove the vagal stimulation so that their blood pressure can recover. And removing foreign bodies is an entirely reasonable thing we should be doing in the emergency department. But I would agree, every time we do an intervention or a diagnostic test, and let's remember that really doing a PV examination is a diagnostic test, we have to again consider the sensitivity and specificity of that test and whether it's going to change our decision making. And from my point of view, I don't believe that I will ever change my decision about whether a patient needs to be seen by a gynaecologist or admitted to gynaecology on the basis of a PV examination. I'm going to do it from all the other things we've talked about, adding up their risk factors, listening to their history, their clinical examination. Those are the things that are going to make me decide. And I don't think a PV examination adds to that. And frankly, most of our UK emergency departments just don't have a pleasant enough area in order to do this with any kind of dignity and privacy for our patients. 
I wish we did have those sorts of areas, but we simply don't. So from my point of view, a PV examination is there for those emergencies you mentioned, but otherwise isn't necessary. So we've thought a bit about the ectopic pregnancy. Obviously, we've got the patients who present with crashing blood pressures, who it's obvious who's going to need to come in. We've then got those other ones who come in with a bit of crampy lower abdominal pain, perhaps no risk factors. Some hospitals won't have the ability to scan all these patients at the point of the patient coming to the ED, especially at weekends and out of hours. So in our hospital, we organise an early pregnancy assessment unit follow-up and that tends to be within the next 48 hours. Do you have something similar now? We're quite lucky really because we've got a specialist maternity gynaecology hospital on site so we've got criteria by which if women don't need to be resuscitated imminently they're usually seen directly by the gynaecology team they go up straight up to the early pregnancy unit so it's a little bit different from us but I I have worked in departments where we've had protocols about who needs to be seen by gynae today and who can have an appointment made at EPAU for the next day I think it's a case of following your local guidance in those circumstances. As with all these induction topics we cover Go to somebody who's been working in your department for a little while. Ask the question, what is it that we do locally for our patients with PV bleeding or problems in early pregnancy? They'll be able to tell you locally what you do, but it will differ depending on what services you have available. So we've gone through ectopic pregnancy a bit. I guess then we get to the patient who would be having what we might be describing as a threatened miscarriage. So the patient who is pregnant, who's coming with some bleeding, maybe some pain. What's your approach to those patients where we've ruled out an ectopic? It's worth thinking about a little bit of terminology before we get started into those patients. So miscarriage is a term that refers to patients who are less than 24 weeks gestation and beyond 24 weeks. It's technically a viable fetus. So we would call that a stillbirth. And a threatened miscarriage is where you've got vaginal bleeding through a closed cervical os. So if the bleeding continues, it's likely that the pregnancy will miscarry completely, but not necessarily. There's also inevitable miscarriages where the os is opened that's something that you're not going to know until you do your pv and speculum exam again we're not going to do that unless there's signs of cervical shock and about 50 percent of threatened miscarriages will convert to an inevitable miscarriage it then becomes a complete miscarriage once all the products of conception have passed it's an incomplete miscarriage if there are some retained products and we do see those patients in the emergency department who will have been into the gynae ward with a heavy bleeding a couple of days before, told that they've had a miscarriage and they come back because they're still bleeding. They've usually got some retained products and they often need to go to gynae to remove those products. And don't forget that you can, if those products aren't removed, these patients can turn up further down the line septic. So they they may or may not be febrile, but they'll give you a history that they've had a miscarriage and then they're They've got severe abdominal pain, quite unwell. We're going to do pregnancy tests in those patients, which may still be positive if there are retained products there, but just worth thinking about that as well. So how I would approach those patients, we do see them sometimes. Generally, if the the bleeding is relatively light, then they can be managed on an outpatient basis. But sometimes we see them when they are very heavily bleeding and there's not a great deal that we do for those patients we speak to the gynae team and get them to come and see them in the department if they're bleeding very heavily what they really need is a lot of patience and understanding lots of these women will really believe that they've done something to cause this miscarriage which is not the case it's just something that happens particularly in early pregnancy and the availability of pregnancy tests to patients means that we patients tend to know that they're pregnant earlier and so what they might have traditionally or historically thought was just a late period now they know that that's an early miscarriage and so they're tending to come and seek healthcare advice earlier on they just need some reassurance generally sometimes some analgesia and you can give them paracetamol cocodamol whatever you would normally give simple analgesia and be kind to them i think this is one of those times where taking a few minutes to explain what's going on 
even in a busy emergency department, are incredibly valuable. For some of these women and the men who've come along with them, and I've got personal experience of this, this is a big deal. They've perhaps been trying to get pregnant for a little while, and they've suddenly got that positive pregnancy test, and now they're frightened and scared that they're losing this much desired for and longed for pregnancy. And actually, that can be psychologically very difficult. And for us, these are relatively straightforward cases. We can say, well, here you are. Here's an appointment. Don't worry about it. Off you go. And they'll be out of our emergency department. We can move on to the next patient. But for them, this is a life-changing moment. And I agree entirely. I think taking a few minutes to say, you've done nothing wrong. Getting pregnant is actually quite a complex procedure. And it involves quite a lot of things aligning and everything happening right. And that will happen for you in all likelihood. This isn't anything that you could have prevented. You've not done anything. And actually, also important to reiterate now, you can't change what's going to happen. So if you're destined to have a miscarriage, that's going to happen. We can't give you any treatment to change that. Go out, have an evening out, go for a meal, have a couple of glasses of wine, whatever it takes so that you can just share what is a really difficult time with your partner or your family and get through what can be a horrible wait while they get the scan that confirms what they often know is inevitable. I would also be wary of telling people that that they definitely have lost the pregnancy that it's that they have miscarried because unless they pass something that is recognisable as a fetus in the emergency department, it's not always the case that it's a, a complete miscarriage. So just be wary of giving patients that news that they have miscarried because it just causes even more distress if they then go to see gynae. Yes, of course, they're going to be delighted that, that you're wrong, but it does make you look rather silly and they can be genuinely very annoyed that you've caused them so much distress and upset. Completely agree with you because actually bleeding in early pregnancy is very common and can go on to have a normal pregnancy with a baby being born at the end of it. I tend to in the emergency department paint the worst case scenario and say look there's a chance you might have lost your baby but we don't know for definite and we need to make sure by getting you seen by the early pregnancy assessment unit. I'm going to tell you the worst case scenario because if we're surprised, it's a lovely surprise. But I can't tell you for definite that everything's going to be okay. It's just one of those things I tend to do with breaking bad news with most of my patients in the ED when there's the potential of something bad happening. I think preparing people for the worst is a reasonable way forward. But making sure that they're aware that there is a small chance, albeit small, perhaps that things could go the way that they're hoping. So Natalie, I hope that we've given our listeners a bit of an idea about how best to approach these patients who present to us, these young women with problems in early pregnancy. Of course, there'll be a blog post to accompany this, and it includes a video presentation from one of my colleagues at Southampton, Sarah Robinson, who'll be going into this in more detail. We recorded it for the CMEP project a few years ago, so you can always go off and watch that, and we'll give you some links to further learning. Nat, you can just round up for us the learning points that we can take home from this session, could you? So we talked about ectopic pregnancy, which occurs in about one in 100 pregnancies in the UK. We talked about the patients that definitely need to go to gynae. So that's those who are presenting with syncope in the context of a positive pregnancy test or those with hemodynamic instability or any pre-existing risk factors for an ectopic pregnancy in the time frame before they've had a, a scan to confirm the location of the pregnancy. We also discussed the utility of urine versus serum HCG testing in determining which patients are or aren't pregnant. We had a brief discussion about PV examination and when we should and shouldn't do that in the emergency department. And lastly, we talked about bleeding in early pregnancy and how we can look after those patients properly. That's a great summary, Nat. Thank you so much. We hope you've enjoyed this induction podcast and found it useful. 
Good luck with your emergency medicine. Don't forget there's always seniors there to ask. And these are patients that you probably want to run past a senior colleague as you're starting off your career and your time working in an emergency department. We look forward to speaking to you again soon. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening. Thank you.